My name is Anne Kenigsmark, and I'm an English teacher, a writer, and a former journalist. And now I am your host for Cocktail Party Takeaways, a podcast for anyone with regrets, but not deep ones, about the books they slept through in high school. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for 80 years and might stand for 80 more. Within, walls continued upright, Bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. So reads the bone-chilling first paragraph of Shirley Jackson's 1959 novel, The Haunting of Hill House. It has been called the greatest haunted house story of the 20th century, and it's October. So while April may be the cruelest month, I'm looking at you, T.S. Eliot. We all know which one is the spookiest. I have two warnings before we get started. First, I will be revealing the end of Hill House. So if you don't want any spoilers, pause now, save this episode, and read the book first. Also, this book is legit creepy. If you scare easily, I don't recommend reading this one right before you turn out the light. I first came across Shirley Jackson when I was a kid going through a horror phase. I remember lolling on my fuzzy yellow carpet, reading Roald Dahl and Stephen King's short stories, and later Shirley Jackson's other creepy house novel, We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Then I would lie in bed with my eyes peeled open, waiting for the shadows on the wall to attack me. To this day, I'm afraid of the dark. So good job, guys. You're scary. Proud of yourselves? Now, if you're ready, I'm about to make you sound so smart at your next cocktail party. Let's start with the easy stuff. The Haunting of Hill House and its author, Shirley Jackson, are definitely trending. You have seen or at least heard about the Haunting of Hill House Netflix series or the sort of biopic called Shirley starring Elizabeth Moss. So takeaway number one, both of these adaptations take humongous liberties with the original material. The 2018 Netflix show is more of an homage than an adaptation. Some characters have names from the book. There's a character named Shirley. There's a spooky house. There's a cup of stars. More on that later. But that's about it. I mean, I really enjoyed it, and it scared the crap out of me, but it's not the book. The 2020 movie, Shirley, is interesting to watch, but the central storyline is completely made up, so do not use this as a reference for information about the real Shirley Jackson. And if you think you've never heard of Shirley Jackson before the Netflix show, or the Shirley movie, or this podcast, you have, because it is practically against the law to leave high school without reading The Lottery, 
her infamous short story, wherein a quiet little New England town has a rather savage annual custom, stoning to death a randomly picked citizen. Lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. Ring a bell? Okay, now I'm going to ask you the kind of question I like to ask my students at the beginning of class. Normally, this would be a journal prompt, but I won't make you stop driving or walking to dig around for a pen and paper. Just think on this for a sec. Do you live in your dream house or does your dream house live in you? I have a passion and obsession for big old houses. The first house I remember living in was the one we had in the 1970s in a leafy in-town Atlanta neighborhood. It was a version of the Foursquare, a classic early 20th century style where you have two stories with four large rooms on each. The house was brick, high up on a hill with a deep porch on the front and a brick patio with a rock garden leading to the yard in the back. I had a fireplace in my room and there was a formal parlor where my mom and I would have tea parties. My favorite toy was my dollhouse, handcrafted just for me with working lights and hand-sewn carpets and drapes. It featured the same four over four design as our house, so no wonder that aesthetic has dug itself into my DNA. I have spent my life longing for a house like this. In fact, most of my coveting of my neighbor's stuff centers around their houses. And it's a poisonous longing because in all likelihood, it can never be satisfied. For example, in my memory, my childhood home was a dream home. But if I look back more carefully, I recall that I envied my friends' homes, the ones with plush wall-to-wall carpeting, intercom systems, swimming pools, and ping pong tables. Our house had an outdated kitchen and always seemed to need work. I wanted my friend's canopy bed with the fluffy pink comforter and matching pillowcases, not my rickety cannonball bed that came with some family lore about getting it over the Cumberland River on a raft. Even worse than the trick's memory plays, I actually lived in a version of my dream home for a time, and it nearly drove me insane. It was an elegant two-story stucco with a balcony and a red tile roof perched on one of the only hills in the city of New Orleans. It had a switchback staircase that I festooned with live greenery at Christmas and a shady porch where we drank and laughed with our neighbors. My kids had French doors for windows that looked out over a ginormous sycamore tree. But that house was like a bad boyfriend. It had my heart, but it was always letting me down. Leaky pipes, shaky foundation, termite infestations, and a list of urgent renovations as long as your arm. Here is where it really gets weird. I have recurring dreams that take place in my dream house, either the one from my childhood or the one in New Orleans or some made-up version. But here's the thing. These dreams are always nightmares. It is one of two scenarios. There's a haunted third floor of death that can never be visited, a place so unspecifically yet preternaturally terrifying that I wake up sweating before I ever open the door to access it. Or there's an easy way into the house, a front door that can't be closed or locked, a back door that's jammed and a cinch to break into. Hooligan intruders, think extras from Road Warrior, all grizzled and menacing without an ounce of humanity between them, are about to push their way in. I am frozen in amber 
and unable to move at all. My hands won't work, and terror runs through me like ice water. And then I wake up. Unpack that one, Dr. Freud. Okay, so The Haunting of Hill House also features a dream house, nightmare house scenario. I think I can sum up the plot in just a couple of sentences. There's a house, and it's haunted, and a ghost hunter wants to witness the haunting. He recruits two women, Eleanor and Theodora, who have had psychic experiences in the past, to come with him. The young man who stands to inherit the house also joins them. Hauntings ensue, as does parlor intrigue. Then the house kind of zeroes in on the weak link, Eleanor. She eventually goes mad and kills herself because she doesn't want to leave Hill House. Everyone else leaves, and Hill House goes on standing there, seemingly oblivious to the mess it is always causing. The end. Okay, that was more than two sentences. I'm going to flip things around for this episode and list the takeaways first. First of all, there's that amazing first paragraph, which we are going to unpack in just a sec. It is a takeaway all on its own, but you should know that that paragraph is repeated as the last paragraph of the book, almost word for word. The next takeaway is the cup of stars, which appears in a scene during Eleanor's journey to Hill House. The next is the repeated use of a song from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, particularly this one line, journeys end in lover's meeting. Finally, I have two English teacher scholarly nerd takeaways. One is that I'm going to assert that Shirley Jackson seems to be throwing some shade on the patriarchy. Two is the, to me, obvious sexual tension and romantic attraction between the two female characters. I believe their thwarted romance is at the heart of this book. Many critics, even contemporary ones, downplay this or make it a one-way thing, just Theodora. But I will argue it is as plain as the red sweater they share. Let's get started by unpacking that first paragraph. I will read it again. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for 80 years and might stand for 80 more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. So the first sentence is an aphorism, a statement that is meant to be taken as a fact. But really, it's more like a thesis statement, a debatable claim. Let's try to translate it. So nothing that is alive can remain sane or not cuckoo nutty if they are in absolute reality. I am literally Googling absolute reality right now. The American Psychological Association's definition seems like the one Shirley Jackson would choose. It says, in philosophy, it is the totality of what really exists beyond what we humans perceive. So this puts me in mind of Emily Dickinson's poem, Tell All the Truth, But Tell It Slant, which says, too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. 
In other words, we humans, and I guess Larks and Katie dids as well, would turn to ash if we looked directly at the truth. Or in Jackson's world, we would go crazy. All right, I'm with you, Shirley. That was a complicated way to get started, but I'm picking up what you're laying down. But Hill House, not sane, stood by itself. Two spooky things of note here. A, the house is crazy. And B, it is alive. It is a live organism. And if we follow the narrator's logic, the house is cracked up because it lives in conditions of absolute reality. In the words of Bugs Bunny, this is getting fascinating. We then learn it is dark, it is 80 years old, it has doors and walls and floors that are firm and sensible, but whatever walked there walked alone. Yep, I am already scared. Well played, Cheryl. After this complex and ominous first paragraph, surely deserving of a place in the pantheon of great first paragraphs, the next one introduces Dr. John Montague, a doctor of philosophy. He had taken his degree in anthropology, feeling obscurely that in this field, he might come closest to his true vocation, the analysis of supernatural manifestations. He was scrupulous about the use of his title. It goes on to say he has been looking for the real haunted house all his life and thinks Hill House is going to make him famous. I would argue that Jackson places this stodgy description of the most boring character in the book first to demand that we understand who is in charge here. Welcome to the patriarchy a snooze fest led by a pretend scientist who insists on his title. It's no accident there is a distinct Victorian hint-dropping party also happening on the first page. First of all, the house at 80 years old was built in the Victorian era, and it says the doctor plans to use investigative methods derived from the intrepid 19th century ghost hunters. So clearly, Shirley Jackson is letting us know that this will be a good old-fashioned gothic tale with allusions to the Victorian novels of that genre. But I wonder if she is also setting up a takedown of the cult of domesticity, a Victorian-era way of thinking that glorified women doing traditional roles, staying at home, raising kids, not reading, and for sure not thinking, for heaven's sake. Why she does this is unclear at first, but let's see if the book reveals her motives. Dr. Montague searches news articles and other records looking for some recruits to come with him. Long story short, he winds up with two single ladies who have had psychic experiences of some sort, Eleanor and Theodora. Eleanor, the actual protagonist of the novel and from whose point of view most of the story is told, is first described simply as 32 years old. The next thing we learn about her is this. The only person in the world she genuinely hated, now that her mother was dead, was her sister. She disliked her brother-in-law and her five-year-old niece, and she had no friends. Gee, I really can't wait to hang out with her for a whole novel. Her misanthropy and isolation stem from her 11 years that she had to spend taking care of her extremely sick mother, a time rife with small guilts and unending despair. 
The only time she remembers being happy was in childhood before her father died. But die he did, and when she was 12, for three days, showers of stones had fallen on their house. This was the psychic incident that caught the doctor's attention. I mean, a shower of stones? I've got two thoughts here. It seems more than a little fishy that this is the second starring role for stones in a Shirley Jackson work, the first being the stones used to kill the unlucky winner in her short story, The Lottery. And stones seem, I don't know, biblical? Like judgment raining down? Didn't they used to stone adulterers? All of this is important later, as I think Eleanor carries around a lot of guilt and shame. She is also bored out of her freaking mind. She had been waiting for something like Hill House, for something to take her away from her tiny life and the cot she sleeps on at her sister's house. She would have gone anywhere, the narrator says, and in fact, she even steals the car that she shares with her sister over her sister's objections in order to run away. Theodora, we learn, is not at all like Eleanor and believes duty and conscience are attributes that belong to the Girl Scouts, but not to her. She shares an apartment with her, quote, friend, who is deliberately left genderless, and they have a spat, which is deliberately left ambiguous. She is also a bit psychic, which is why she is chosen by Montague. She can, quote, correctly identify 18 cards out of 20, 15 cards out of 20, 19 cards out of 20, held up by an assistant, out of sight and hearing. Do you think I have it, Dr. Venkman? You're no fluke, Jennifer. Finally, there is Luke Sanderson. Here is the thing we learn about him. Luke Sanderson was a liar. He was also a thief. Huh, okay. This is weird because it never really comes up again. It's a bit of an unused loaded gun, if I may coyly reference Anton Chekhov and then not explain myself. Luke is the heir to Hill House, and we need a guy for the girls to fight over. So as far as I am concerned, that is why he is invited. A journey is almost always a metaphor for some sort of transformation, and Jackson is not taking any chances that one of her readers might be too boneheaded to know this. I am going, I am going, I have finally taken a step, Eleanor says as she makes her way to Hill House in her sort of stolen car. Leaving cities for the country, another familiar metaphor for finding one's true, authentic self. And so Eleanor thinks to herself that she is free of the city and, quote, no one can catch me now. And what does she do with her newfound freedom? She starts to have some weird-ass fantasies. What if she pulled over and wandered into the woods? Maybe she would find a kindly woodcutter? When she sees a large house, she imagines living there, dusting the stone lions out front each morning, patting their heads, and brushing their teeth. She fancies that while she tends to the lions, a dainty old lady waits on her. 
Surely this is meant as recompense for the decades spent with her sick mom. Then she sees the remains of a house surrounded by oleanders. Symbol alert, pretty name, deadly plant. Will I, she thought, will I get out of my car and go between the ruined gates and then once I am in the magic oleander square, find that I have wandered into a fairyland protected poisonously from the eyes of people passing? Protected poisonously. That has to be the only time poisonous has been used as an adverb to the verb protect. I love it. In this fairyland are all the things she never had. A queen, read her mother, waiting for her beloved princess, read Eleanor, to return. She pictures a handsome prince riding toward her in green and silver, and even an explicitly stated happily ever after. I mean, as we like to say in the South, this girl is notiony, and anyone this notiony is kind of setting themselves up for disappointment at the very least. Jackson follows this dreamy sequence with a scene in a diner in which a little girl at a nearby table won't drink her milk because she doesn't have her favorite cup of stars, a cup she uses at home that has stars painted at the bottom. She wants her cup of stars, the mother explains to the perplexed dad. So do I, thinks Eleanor. A cup of stars, of course. The mother tries to coax the girl into drinking from the regular cup, and Eleanor thinks, don't do it. Insist on your cup of stars. Once they have trapped you into being like everyone else, you will never see your cup of stars again. Don't do it. And the little girl seems to pick up this telegraphed feminist entreaty and stands her ground. Brave girl, Eleanor thinks. And the dad, of course, is pissed and says, she ought not to be allowed these whims. Again, I would argue that some sinister dream-crushing patriarchy is being hinted at here. But maybe that's just me. After this encounter, Eleanor gets a little earworm in her head. Journey's end, she thought, and far back in her mind, sparkling like a little stream, a tag end of a tune danced through her head. In delay, there lies no plenty. So these are lines from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, and if that's not a cocktail party takeaway ripe for the leveling, then I should pack up my mic and quit now. Here's the whole song. Oh, mistress mine, where are you roaming? Oh, stay in here, your true love's coming, that can sing both high and low. Trip no further, pretty sweeting, journey's end in lover's meeting, every wise man's son doth know. What is love? Tis not hereafter, present mirth hath present laughter. What's to come is still unsure. In delay there lies no plenty. Then come kiss me, sweet and twenty. Youth's a stuff will not endure. So, girl's got some expectations going into this thing. When she arrives in Hillsdale, everything is textbook gothic horror, and you will recognize many little devices from classic scary movies and books. There is a nothing little town with suspicious people that Dr. Montague actually specifically tells her to avoid in his directions. There's the untraveled, rutted road to the house, crowded in by trees on either side and plunged in darkness. There's the heavy, foreboding, and locked gate at the entrance to the house and the just plain rude gatekeeper who is not expecting her, who tells her he doesn't stay after dark, ever, and says to her as he finally relents and lets her in, you won't like it, 
You'll be sorry I ever opened the gate. And there's Eleanor's first impression of the house itself. The house was vile. She shivered. Hill House is vile. It is diseased. Get away from here at once. In chapter two, the house is described as awake and angry, a house of despair that seemed to have formed itself, an evil house. I am like a small creature, swallowed by a monster, Eleanor says, as she stands in her cheerless blue guest room that bears no small structural resemblance to a coffin. Still, she keeps repeating to herself, journeys end in lover's meeting. And then she meets Theodora, who within half an hour she feels is, quote, close and vital. Eleanor is surprisingly charming and witty around her, easily matching Theo's quips about the horror house and the horror house's cranky keeper, Mrs. Dudley, wife of the rude gatekeeper. In a spin of color, Eleanor in red, Theo in sun yellow, they race outside to explore. And here's where the queer coding starts to crank up. Theodora seems to have a sixth sense for Eleanor's inner feelings and bluntly states them out loud, as in, you're frightened. To calm her, she gently touches a single finger to Eleanor's cheek. When Eleanor asks Theo about where she lives, Theo talks about how we found an old place and fixed it up ourselves. So naturally, Eleanor asks, are you married? The narrator says, there was a little silence. And then Theodora laughed quickly and said, no. Theo seems to represent a confidence and independence Eleanor feels drawn to, but also at times repulsed or embarrassed by, which makes sense. Eleanor has experienced the worst of the cult of domesticity, all of the imprisonment and household drudgery, none of the pleasure of a husband or children. So it's all she knows, and she believes she would be a bad girl to leave it. When she is unpacking, she thinks to herself that her mother would be furious if she knew Eleanor had packed slacks for this journey. So when she first meets Theo, they are literally frolicking like children or new lovers around the house and into the yard, pretending to be cousins and making silly plans together. And you can tell Eleanor is practically drowning in the kinship and sudden attention of this confident and elegant creature. She has never experienced anything like this. Remember, as far as we know, she hated everyone around her until now. Luke and the doctor are the next to arrive. Luke is charming and rakish. The doctor is authoritarian and fatherly, often referring to the other guests as my children. He tells them the history of Hill House, a history that makes it clear that the place was born bad. This is not a story of a grisly murder that leads to a haunting. This house got built and decided from the get-go to kill or scare away anyone who dared stay too long. The scenes vacillate between parlor scenes, who likes who, to creepy ones. Comic relief is provided by Mrs. Dudley, who has this robotic way of repeating a few choice words and phrases. I clear up at 10. I set out lunch at 1. She reminds me of Nurse Diesel from Mel Brooks's High Anxiety. No fruit cup for you. The guests giggle nervously at her behind her back. The first scare comes when they are exploring the house and Eleanor cannot enter the library. I can't go in there, Eleanor said, surprising herself. She backs away, overwhelmed with the cold air and earth that rushes at her. My mother, she said. What? 
Why is she feeling like she is at the entrance of a tomb and talking about her mother? No one but Eleanor is affected by the library, but they all feel the weird freezing cold spot outside the nursery. Dr. Montague calls it the heart of the house. That night, they are all haunted by a frantic knocking on the doors up and down the hallway. At first, Eleanor thinks it is her mother knocking on her wall because she needed something. She thinks her mother is still alive and she is still living with her, tending to her every need. But then she realizes she is in Hill House and that everyone can hear the knocking. Eleanor and Theodora sit terrified on Theo's bed and a deathly cold settles around them as the knocking becomes deafening. The doorknob is fondled. There are sounds of panting and sticky sounds. Finally, it stops, and the doctor and Luke come to say they had been chasing a dog or something like it through the house and outside. Yep, I am officially scared now. But Eleanor, the next morning, she wakes up, quote, unbelievably happy. Journeys end in lovers' meeting. The very air tastes like wine. It is excitement, and we are all enjoying ourselves. Just a guess. But could she perhaps be thrilled that she spent this terrifying night with Theodora? Just saying. However, the house won't let her stay happy for long. After breakfast, Luke discovers writing in chalk in a hallway. Help, Eleanor, come home. Eleanor is understandably wigged out that the house knows her name. But everyone else downplays this and even subtly accuses her of being a bit of a narcissist for thinking the house is especially interested in her. Theodora goes so far as to suggest Eleanor wrote it herself. The nerve! Then the scares start coming fast and furious. Theodora discovers her room has been destroyed, her clothes and the walls covered in a red that everyone suspects is blood, but no one can bring themselves to admit it. Smeared in red on the wall, it says, Help, Eleanor. Come home, Eleanor. Again, Theodora accuses Eleanor of the deed. It is hard to tell if she really means it. But as a result, Eleanor begins to hate Theodora, like more than she hated her mom and her sister. Perhaps again, there is an undercurrent of Puritan guilt here, tossed with a smidge of shame over her own attraction to her new friend. She is wicked, Eleanor thinks to herself, beastly and soiled and dirty. After they are back downstairs, Eleanor continues to stew, I would like to beat her with a stick, she thinks to herself. I would like to shatter her with rocks. I would like to watch her dying. Um, yikes. So this is kind of weird, even for Eleanor. But we need to remember the setup. Evil house, weak notiony protagonist. Madness may be close at hand. So we are now maybe two-thirds of the way through the novel, and the doctor offers up some interesting observations about fear he calls it the relinquishment of logic, and then says he thinks we are only afraid of ourselves. Luke adds, no, of seeing ourselves clearly and without disguise. And Theodora says, of knowing what we really want, and then pressed her cheek against Eleanor's hand. Eleanor snatches her hand away and says she is afraid of being alone. So I read this moment of communal self-awareness as the house exposing them to conditions of absolute reality, which means if they stay there, they will not be able to remain sane. But then Eleanor takes it to another level 
talking about separate selves and part of her dissolving and slipping into the house because it is calling her by her name. She then says, if I could only surrender. And the rest of them are like, whoa, whoa, what? And then they accuse her of always wanting to be the center of attention. Hello, it's her name on the wall. And where is home? And who is crying for help? So then let's look at this weird sequence of events that seems to support my theory that the house represents a menacing patriarchal order that will not allow Theodora and Eleanor to act on their mutual attraction. First, Luke flirts a little with Eleanor, telling her he grew up without a mother, blah, blah, poor me. Eleanor's take? He is altogether selfish. The only man I have ever sat and talked to alone, and I am impatient. He is simply not very interesting. Then the four Ghostbusters find a bizarre book that the house's owner, Hugh Crane, made for his daughter. He made it by destroying other books, taping famous works of art into his own scrapbook. The book issues dire warnings about what happens to little girls who don't remain pure, pits of snakes and Goya paintings and the like. One of the pages is even singed a little to serve as a physical cue as to what hell would be like. And naturally, he signed the book in blood. The unspoken message, don't cross the patriarchy, ladies. Next, Theodora mocks Eleanor for flirting with Luke. Will you have him to your little apartment and have him drink from your cup of stars? It is clear that Theodora knows Eleanor lied when she said she had her own apartment. When Eleanor gets agitated, Theodora explains that she thinks Luke is a cad and wants to protect her. Eleanor says, it doesn't mean anything to you no matter what happens. Then she softens and says, I'm no good at talking to people and saying things. This is clearly a jealous lover spat, even if it is not blatantly presented as such. The narrator then says, nothing irrevocable had yet been spoken, but there was only the barest margin of safety left them, each of them moving delicately along the outskirts of an open question, and once spoken, such a question as, do you love me, could never be answered or forgotten. They are then walking in, quote, the most extreme intimacy of expectation. What a phrase. Each knew, almost within a breath, what the other was thinking and wanting to say. Each of them almost wept for the other. They perceived at the same moment the change in the path, and each knew then the other's knowledge of it. They moved on slowly, close together, and the path widened and blacked and curved. I mean, I don't know why this complex and fascinating relationship is rarely given its due in the literature about this novel. Oh, wait, I do know why. Anyway, what happens next, as I see it, is that the house itself comes between them. There's a blinding whiteness in the trees where all should have been pitch darkness, and then they both see a phantasmagoric vision, a bright and happy picnic scene with a mother, a father, children, and a puppy, which makes Theo scream in terror and say, run, don't look, run. Now, I am no Harold Bloom, but really, how could this be anything other than the queer character telling the ambivalent character to run away from the terror of traditional domesticity? When they get back to the house, Theo keeps repeating Eleanor's name and rests her head on hers. And holding Theodora, Eleanor looked up at Luke and the doctor 
and felt the room rock madly. And time, as she had always known it, stop. Are we seriously pretending this book is about something else? At the beginning of the next chapter, Eleanor is lying in the grass of the hills of Hill House with nothing in her mind but an overwhelming wild happiness and nothing in her hands except a daisy, which instantly dies. Happy endings are not on the horizon, dear reader. Things take another interesting turn when the doctor's wife and her companion show up. My two cents? Clearly the doctor has failed in his patriarchal duties and allowed this lesbian festival to flourish under his careless eye, so the cult of domesticity cavalry must be called in. And man, Shirley Jackson must have had so much fun writing this section of the book. Mrs. Montague is a battle axe, straight out of central casting, out-nurse dieseling even Mrs. Dudley, who becomes soft in her presence. She storms in, starts ordering everyone around, and basically shames her husband for not doing a better job of managing things. She means the ghost hunting, but I wonder if Shirley Jackson is winking at or with us. Meanwhile, her companion, Arthur, who comes because, you know, she can't drive that far alone, is an extreme manly man, a pistol-packing headmaster who talks without using subjects in his sentences like he's John Wayne. Young man's a coward, he says of Luke within two minutes of meeting him. He explains that at his school, he punishes boys who are crybabies and don't like sports. Hmm. The sleeping arrangements that night are thus. Mrs. Montague will sleep in the super spooky nursery with the cold spot. Arthur will be right next door to her, but mostly patrolling the halls with his loaded and drawn revolver. And the four original Ghostbusters will be holed up in the doctor's room. Almost immediately, the worst haunting of the whole book begins. Rushing winds up and down the halls, knocking on doors so violent it pushes the door and threatens the hinges, the padding of the door frame, the fondling of the doorknob, quote, as though wheedling to be let in. Full body shivers here. So they are all in this together until this paragraph, which narrates Eleanor's thoughts. I will never be able to sleep again with all this noise coming from inside my head. How can these others hear the noise when it is coming from inside my head? I am disappearing inch by inch into the house. It gets so bad, it seems like the whole house is about to crash down around their ears, and Eleanor thinks it is over for me. I will relinquish my possession of this self of mine, abdicate, give over willingly what I have never wanted at all. Whatever it wants of me, it can have. The next morning, Eleanor is changed. I can hear everything all over the house, she thinks to herself. It is as though she is indeed becoming subsumed into Hill House. Then she declares to Theodora that she is going to come with her back home when this Hill House Halloween party is over. I have never had anyone to care about, she says. I want to be someplace where I belong. And Theodora is like, yeah, um, this is just like a summer thing, you know? When Eleanor persists, Theo goes full mean girl and says, I don't understand. Do you always go where you're not wanted? And poor Eleanor says, I've never been wanted anywhere. Then Eleanor confesses. She believes it is her own fault her mother died, that she was knocking on the wall between them and calling for her, but she never woke up. 
She worries that she did wake up, but purposely didn't go in to help. This all, of course, makes the knocking and the help Eleanor messages all the more legit and focused on Eleanor, and it seems as if the house is actually exposing the poor woman's innermost self. Whatever its motives, Hill House seems to want Eleanor, so Eleanor gives in. Suddenly, she can hear everything, even the dust as it drifts in the attic. That night, it is Eleanor who is doing the haunting, sneaking up and down the halls, knocking on doors, calling out for her mother. I can feel the whole house, she says. She then enters the dreaded library and climbs a set of creaking stairs up to the tower, saying to herself, I am home, I am home. This is the same set of stairs an earlier resident climbed to hang herself. The others find her there, and Luke is forced to mount the stairs and bring her down. The incident rattles the others, who scold Eleanor for being so reckless, and then, worried for her sanity, send her packing, literally. As they get her things together, she says, How long have we been here? And the answer is, A little over a week. What? As a reader, I feel like I have been trapped in this nightmare for many months. She says, It's the only time anything's ever happened to me. I liked it. As they watch her drive away, she says again for the millionth time, journey's end in lover's meeting. But I won't go, she thought. They can't make me leave. Not if Hill House means me to stay. And she floors the gas and heads straight for a large tree. She says, I am doing it. I am really, really, really doing it by myself. But her last thought before the crash is, why am I doing this? Why don't they stop me? The question hangs in the air. What did Eleanor really want? I think she wanted the love she felt with Theo and the excitement of being part of something, of being chosen for something, by something. But because what she wanted was, in her repressed brain, forbidden, she let herself be consumed by an evil house where she will now walk alone. The last paragraph begins with a sort of afterward. Theodora and her friend reunite. Luke runs off to Paris. Dr. Montague retires after his colleagues turn up their noses at his Hill House article. And finally, Hill House, not sane, stood against the hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for 80 years and might stand for 80 more. Within, its walls continued upright, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. The introduction in the Penguin edition of the novel sums up this denouement neatly. Escape is a mirage. That is the real horror of Hill House. Eleanor now walks alone, and that is the fate she most feared and most desired. And that's it. Careful what you wish for, but be careful not to wish for nothing. Journeys end in lovers meeting, but meeting ain't the same as staying together. The patriarchy is here to stay, and it's got an evil house on its side. And finally, the truth hurts, man. It really does. If you enjoyed this episode of Cocktail Party Takeaways, please rate it and leave a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. In the next episode, we will begin unpacking another 20th century masterpiece. Some would say the 20th century masterpiece, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. It's also less than 200 pages, so if you've never read it 
or it has been a while, now's the time. Remember how in the introductory episode I leveled the takeaways depending on the kind of party you're attending? I invite you, the listeners, to give it a try. Maybe you thought other parts of this podcast were better takeaways than the ones I came up with. I welcome any and all suggestions. So let's get social. Follow me on Twitter at AnnRochelle67. That's A-N-N-E-R-O-C-H-E-L-L 67. For more information about me or about the podcast, go to AnnRochelle.com. And please subscribe to Cocktail Party Takeaways on your platform of choice and tell a friend. Cocktail Party Takeaways is produced by Gus Kenigsmark with original music by Gus Kenigsmark. Cover art by Stuart Key. Cheers, and let's all read more 